what I do is we talk through what they've experienced and usually it's been a little emotional and traumatic because we talk about things like trafficking, we talk about prostitution, street level prostitution as a way to survive on the streets, talk about youth numbers and then we meet some of those people. I usually finish off saying something like, you know, you've come to Toronto for three, four days, you haven't made a difference. Now the challenge is, what will you do when you go home? You are now listening to Undercurrents. My name is Ken Ogasawara, and I'm part of the communications and community engagement team at Mennonite Central Committee in Ontario. This podcast is an experiment to find a new way to share the stories we are privileged to hear from our program participants, staff, volunteers, and others. Undercurrents is brought to you in part by Kindred Credit Union and the Kindred Charitable Fund, which seeks to inspire peaceful, just, and prosperous communities. This episode is about being Jesus. Jeffrey, you're homeless in Toronto. I am. What's it like? Sucks. For decades, homelessness has been a mainstay in every city in North America, if not the world. Though notoriously difficult to pin down accurate numbers, according to a 2014 Library of Parliament paper, the homeless population in Canada is generally estimated at 150,000 to 300,000 individuals in Canada. This could include people who are couch surfing, sleeping in shelters, living out of their cars, as well as people sleeping on the streets. 150 to 300,000. That is a lot of people. The question is, what can be done about it? For a long time, governments and experts at all levels in many countries around the world looked at homeless folks and said, okay, we can clearly see that you are struggling with some key issues that, we assume, have made you homeless and keep you homeless. We see physical and mental illness, we see addictions, we see lack of jobs. So what did the governments and service providers do? Naturally, they provided services that tackled these issues. Things like mental health and medical services, addictions counseling, job training, and countless others. What we were trying to do was, uh, was not working. This is Canadian psychiatrist Dr. Sam Sambaris. In the early 1990s, Dr. Sambaris and his clinical team were serving the homeless population in New York City, and as was the case everywhere else, running into the same cycle of chronic homelessness. And it was really after a series of repeated failures that uh, made us think that we need a, a different way to go. And I think the change was to really uh, humble ourselves and to accept the limitations of the work we were doing as inadequate and work together to develop something that was more meaningful and more effective. Once we uh, surrendered to that idea, uh, we came up with something that was quite uh, spectacular because it included the voice of the people we were working with. Dr. Sambaris asked their clients, what can we do differently? What do you need? And they said to him, isn't it obvious? We need a place to live. So 
Timbaris and his team realized that they, and everyone else, had been doing this work backwards. They'd been saying to homeless folks, you will earn your housing by showing us you can take care of yourself. Instead, they decided to provide housing first and follow up with supports that address these issues of mental health, addictions, and employment. The results, as Dr. Tsimbera says, were spectacular. Extensive studies have been completed on what is now often called permanent supportive housing. These studies find that clients report an increase in perceived levels of autonomy, choice, and control in Housing First programs. In the same way that housing instability, poor mental health, addictions, unemployment, and physical illness combine to create a destructive self-perpetuating cycle, Housing First is a self-perpetuating cycle of improvement. Housing stability leads to improved mental health, physical health, and employment opportunities, which in turn leads to even stronger housing stability. At this point, you may be on board with this, on principle. But how much does it cost? Housing is tight in most urban areas. How can we afford to give all these people homes? These are good questions. But the question we need to ask first is what is the cost of doing nothing? According to a 2016 study for the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, it costs Canadian taxpayers approximately $7 billion per year to maintain the status quo. This is relying on largely emergency response measures to react to problems related to homelessness. How do the bills add up so quickly? Well, let's consider that every 911 call costs over $1,400. A shelter bed costs taxpayers nearly $2,000 a month. Provincial prison costs over $4,000 a month, and a hospital bed costs $10,000 per month. This doesn't include the cost of soup kitchens or drop-in clinics and a number of other stopgap measures we use as Band-Aid solutions to homelessness. So what does it cost to provide housing instead? According to a 2012 study by Stephen Gates, the cost to taxpayers for rental subsidy for a single homeless person is a mere $700 per month. And this is in Toronto, one of Canada's most expensive cities. The cost of taxpayers for social housing is even cheaper at $200 per month per individual. Granted, these numbers are a little dated and they will have gone up since 2012, but so will the cost of shelters, prisons, and hospital visits. The difference is staggering. We can't afford not to house them. While MCC doesn't officially work in housing, we do work on either side of it. On our next episode, I'll introduce you to Wayne, a participant of Circle of Friends, which is a program that supports folks who were previously homeless but are now housed, and aims to keep them that way. On the other side of that, we have tools. Um, a lot of our kids have grown up in church. Their view on life is very simple. Uh, and at some point, you've got to break that mold or they will never understand their own faith and people outside of their bubble. This is Dan Hamill, associate pastor at Bethel Evangelical Missionary Church in New Dundee, a small town surrounded by farmland just west of Kitchener. So I was looking for an opportunity to stretch them beyond um, 
who they are and their experience. Tools, or Toronto, Ontario Opportunities for Learning and Service, brings groups of people, mostly high school students, to downtown Toronto to actively engage in the issue of homelessness. Well, first I thought it was going to be a fun experience. Like, oh, it's a weekend, I'm going to be away in Toronto, it's going to be fun. But this is Rosalind. She's 16 years old and went on a Tools weekend trip twice in the past two years with Pastor Dan and her youth group. You know how it's like the stereotype it is? That's how I heard from him. I've never talked to one, I've never been one, I don't, I don't know. So I don't know what their experience is like, just you hear about them, but not actually from them. This is a profound observation from Rosalind. You hear about them, but not actually from them. This is something the Tools program wants to overcome. More often than not, we look for reasons not to engage. What I love about this program is there is no way not to engage. Right. And I love it. I love this is Pete Olson. He's run the Tools program for the past seven years. He's in his mid-60s, burly with a silver beard, shaved head, and a twinkle in his eye. Business casual attire for Pete is a clean pair of jeans and a sweater without sawdust on it. He teases, he challenges, and he is, in his own words, obnoxious. I push them hard, but they Pete is perfect for this job. I love it. I love watching people walk away from me at Dundas Square with a little bit of terror in their eyes as they think, oh my God, I'm going to go talk to a, a homeless person and it's going to be awful and what are they going to think? And they come back and they're just really excited because they're, you know, they tell me about Jim with brown eyes who's just a real sweetheart or, you know, he came from the East Coast or Heather who, you know, has lost her kids and she's dealing with a drug addiction but she's really doing well. And they just start bringing these rich, um, sometimes very sad but really exciting stories about another human being. Pete is not a tour guide for people who only want to voyeuristically observe homelessness. He forces people to interact with homeless folks. It's not an option. So he told us that we can't have lunch until we found a, a, a person on the street and have lunch with them and talk to them at the same time. So we walked around for hours. It took us a while to find someone. You would think that you would find someone quickly. Oh yeah, they're hungry, they want food. So they would say yes. But surprisingly, one of them said, oh, this guy needs more, so go ask him. He's like, oh, I just need shoes, I don't need food. And then this one lady, she was trying to make us, uh, get us somewhere who had a deal. He's like, she's like, oh, there's this burger place who has a good deal, let's go there. She's like, oh, turn left, turn right. We just followed her, and it turns out we, it was McDonald's. He's like, two for five. Okay, so she got the deal from the McDonald's. Now, there's something weird about this story. Even now, when I listen back to it, there's nothing especially strange about it, but I finally realized what it was. Rosalind gave the homeless woman a choice. Would you like something to eat? What would you like to eat? Where would you like to eat? This idea of choice was a bit of a revelation for me, if I'm being honest. Not because I'm against the idea of giving people a choice, or that the idea itself is new, but because I realized that I had never thought to give them any. The phrase beggars can't be choosers comes to mind. When Rosalind and her friend gave that woman the choice to go to McDonald's, they were offering not just food, 
but dignity as well. For that woman that Rosalind and her friend treated to lunch, it might have been the highlight of her day. But across North America, that very act of sharing food could be legally punishable. In the U.S., the National Coalition for the Homeless published a study showing that between 2013 and 2014, 21 cities took action to pass laws or other measures to restrict food sharing. They literally made it illegal to share food with a homeless person. The unfortunate reality is, most of us don't need the help of laws to prevent us from helping out a homeless person. To Pete, the fact that we choose to ignore homeless people is nothing short of shameful. And that shame is doubled for Christians who choose to ignore the example that Jesus set. I get upset sometimes about the fact that a lot of my groups come from uh, religious institutions and not one has ever approached a homeless person. And I'm not upset with them, but I'm upset at our institution that we've never led them into the margins to sit down, kind of like Jesus did. It's pretty biblical. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. For Pete, any talk of Jesus is not about saving souls. Not in the traditional evangelical sense, anyway. If we're going to introduce them to Jesus, maybe we have to be Jesus for six months. Maybe we have to take them home. Maybe we have to feed them and clothe them and make sure that they have a glass of water. Maybe we need to visit them when they're going through rehab. Maybe maybe we need to actually be Matthew 25 Christians. Heaven forbid we would actually have to do that. But these people are dying on the streets. At the end of our prayer tour in the city, we finish at a homeless memorial right just outside. Pete wasn't always a champion for the poor. He candidly shared about how hitting rock bottom in his personal life started turning things around for him. I was was 39. I... uh, started into a, just a really awful separation and divorce. We had three children. Uh, it was just a mess. I was a bit of a redneck, beer-drinking landscaper, and everything fell apart. In the midst of that, a few very odd Christians, who I was not very nice to, befriended me and started to uh, chat, to care for me, uh, just love me and my kids and it was odd and strange but there was something very attractive about it. One night Pete went to a service where a woman was baptized. When he heard her story he was shocked. It was his own story but coming from another person. They would always take me out for a beer because they knew I liked beer (laughs) and uh, we went out after the service. They sat there and shared a few things, shared a verse from Isaiah that God holds those up or esteems those who are humble and broken in spirit. And they said, Peter, there's no question that you're humble, but we're not sure your spirit is broken quite yet. And then they left me there. So it was me and my beer. By the time I walked out, it was me and my beer and Jesus. Nothing, Nothing got exceptionally better, but everything got exceptionally real. And it was so great. 
Yeah. I think for me, faith in this Hebrew sort of put everything in a perspective that made sense. That although my life was rough, there were no lies about whether it was going to be rough or not. Of course it was going to be rough. Of course, you know, in this life we will have trouble. But having faith and feeling a a very strange, mysterious connection with a spiritual being that I can't prove exists was so settling for me. I guess it was kind of freeing to sit back and relax a little bit, stop feeling like a victim and just feel like I'm part of something a little bit bigger, um, a little bit wider. And it was awesome. And yeah, I, I ended up losing my business and divorced and a single dad for years. And it was like, ugh, this is not easy. But it was definitely doable. And now I'm remarried to an amazing woman. Pretty astounding. Yeah. And life is still difficult, but it's very real. And I just appreciate every day I have. This past fall, I met a man named Pertis outside a fundraiser for President Trump. This was in Atlanta, near a conference I was attending. Pertis was standing in the no-man's land on a boulevard between the anti-Trump protesters and the pro-Trump crowd. He was wearing a red Make America Great Again t-shirt, but upon closer inspection, he had written the words God is on the lettering, so that his shirt read, Make America, God is Great Again which, to be honest, still didn't make any sense to me. In any case, he wore the shirt to instigate conversation, and his real mission, as it turns out, was to advocate for a presidential candidate whose goal was to overcome what he viewed as America's culture of division and fear with love and dignity. I said something like, Wow, that's a great mission, but it'll be hard to do. And he said, No, it's not. Doing the right thing is not hard. In fact, it's easier than trying not to do the right thing. If a man on the street is hungry and asks for some lunch money, it's easy to give him a few bucks. It's much more painful, more awkward, and more difficult to ignore him or come up with reasons why you can't give him that money and we twist ourselves up in guilt or defensiveness trying not to do the right thing. I thought about it. Pertis was right. Back to the big picture. While it's easy to despair at the persistence of chronic homelessness and the draconian measures taken by some cities to criminalize it, there are many communities and cities who have made huge strides in reducing or eliminating homelessness in a humane and dignified way. Since April 1st, 2009, Medicine Hat, a city of about 63,000 in Alberta, has supported and housed 1,166 homeless individuals and counting and has virtually eliminated chronic homelessness in its community. A number of other Canadian cities, including Victoria, Lethbridge, and Fredericton, 
have all signed on with Housing First and are at varying stages of the process. Across the pond, Finland, using the Housing First model, is the only European country with falling rates of homelessness. They have reduced homelessness by 35% and have all but eliminated street sleeping, with only the need for a single 50-bed shelter in the entire country. These changes at the government level need political commitment, policy and program analysis, quality data collection. These are important tools, but hard to grasp and apply for the average person. Pete's goal with the tools program is to challenge us to make a difference on an interpersonal level. How do we change our own attitudes and actions to be more humane and Christ-like? I usually finish off saying something like, you know, you've come to Toronto for three, four days. You haven't made a difference. You've had some amazing moments with people, but this will still continue on as you leave. However, my dream is that Toronto has made a difference in them. And now the challenge is, what will you do when you go home? And it's quite obvious that many of them will do nothing. And I just find that incredibly sad. Although I'm really, really feel the privilege of having a program like this where it pushes them to the edge to say, you can do something. You don't go and save the world, but go and make a difference in one person's life. There's a real sadness to this work, but there has to be hope. I have to hope that he's just an obnoxious God who will continue to rattle our cages and get us out there loving other people. Not judging whether they drink beer or do drugs, just loving them in real practical ways. If you or your youth group or any other community or work group want to engage with issues of homelessness in a visceral, challenging, and possibly life-changing way, please check out mcctools.net. Most trips are between two and four days long. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, please write to us at podcast at mcco.ca. Thank you to my assistant producer, Broderick Visser, for helping to pull all the pieces together for this episode. Our theme song and other original music is by the one and only Brian McMillan. A huge thank you to Kindred Credit Union and the grant we received from the Kindred Charitable Fund for helping to bring these stories to life. The fund is one of the many ways Kindred Credit Union invests hundreds of thousands of dollars each year in communities across Ontario, inspiring peaceful, just, and prosperous initiatives that range from affordable housing to food security to refugee and newcomer supports. Finally, I would like to thank you for listening to Undercurrents. Please subscribe and like on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. I'm Kanagasawara. Have a great rest of your day. I have friends. It's like, okay, I'm pulling off the highway. There's that guy standing there. What do I do? I said, well, you're going to upset some of the people behind you, but you roll your window down, you pull up beside them and say, hey, what's your name? Introduce yourselves, shake hands. And if you want, I mean, prep some bags. Put some Tim Horton cards, subway cards, um, socks. Extremity stuff is great in the winter. Socks, mitts, toques, maybe, you know, five bucks. 
whatever you feel you want to give, soft candy, soft fruit, because their teeth sometimes are a little... Tell them to have a great day, and if you see them more than once, start a relationship. You know, take them for coffee, but just break the barrier. Step through that barrier of us and them, and just make it us.